Welcome to the sermons and teachings from the Catalyst Fellowship with Ipai Michael. We hope the message you're about to listen to will edify you and cause you to experience exponential growth. And now, the message. So this is content and it's been a powerful teaching series, hasn't it been? Yes, sir. I mean, it's been amazing. A lot of people have been like, sir, why don't they teach us these things in church normally? And the thing is, like I told you, um, Papa Kenneth, he again made a statement and I like to repeat it to you guys. You know, and that statement goes thus. It says, if every local church is doing all they need to do, there will be no need for Bible schools. Did you hear what I said? Yes, sir. If every local church is doing all they need to do, there will be no need for Bible schools. It means that it is the responsibility of a local assembly, a local community, a church, to build up its members to a point of (laughs) conviction. Hallelujah. What we are to learn in church isn't just about how to get healed, how to make money, how to get prosperity. It's beyond that. There is more. You need to learn about who you are in Christ. You need to have your convictions strengthened in church. Praise Jesus. And this is very important. And that's why we've been doing content. Content is a teaching series where we've been learning about how to defend our faith. And our anchor text has been Jude 20. By now, you guys should know it by heart, right? Jude 20, and that's because Jude has only one chapter. So Jude um, 1 verse 20. And it says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write to you about the common salvation, it was needful for me to exhort you that you should contend for the faith. So here, Jude is writing to the people and is like, I was supposed to write to you about salvation, which is important, which is the primary thing we should learn about, which is the core of our faith. And it makes sense for him to say that because I know a lot of people who always wanted to learn more about apologetics, but you didn't even learn what got you saved. You want to learn about you know, every other thing. But that's fine. That's totally fine. It can help your salvation. But Jude is saying here, I was supposed to write to you about salvation. But it is needful for me to write to you to contend for the faith. And the word contend there, and I've explained in the previous teachings, if this is your first teaching, I explained that the word contend there is the Greek word epagonizomai. And epagonizomai literally means to enter into a competition So strive earnestly. So Jude is saying, yes, you're saved. But that's not enough. I'm exhorting you now that you should be able to fight for your faith. To be able to defend your faith. And he gives a reason why. At the end, he gives an example. He says, because there are those who want to turn the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to lasciviousness. Are you with me? There are people who want to deny the Christ. And I explained in those teachings, I said, it becomes the responsibility of a believer to establish the truth of his faith before those who aim to pervert it. Hallelujah. It becomes what? The responsibility 
of the believer to defend his faith before those who aim to pervert it. There are answers. You know, many of us grew up in, in homes. I did this as an introduction. I'm just doing it because I see that there are a whole number of people, a lot of people who were not in the previous teachings, you know. So we grew up in communities where we're not used to asking why. You can't ask. The moment you begin to ask some certain questions, they'll say you are, you are, you are, you are backsliding. They need to deliver you. The devil is working in you. And that's the problem. So we have kids who grow up and have not really learned the truth about their faith. Our churches are not teaching enough. All we're learning every Sunday is about the demon and the witch. But yes, they are demons, and it's fine to learn about how to, how to cast out devils. It's fine. Yes, God blesses people. You can, he cares about your finances. That's fine. But there is more. Hallelujah. There is more. The core of the Bible, the central theme of the Bible is Jesus. How much do you know about him? Have you come to a place of conviction about the person of Christ, who he is? And so you read 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. Peter is speaking here. He says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. <coughs> now, the Bible verses are going to be pasted in the comment section. So if you're distracted, you can always read it there. It's been pasted now. It says, sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Be ready. This is true Christian discipleship. It goes beyond just taking whatever you are fed. You can question it. It says, be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you of the faith which is in you. So three things you must know. And I mentioned this in the last teachings. Three things you must know. Number one, the Bible encourages that you know what you believe. The Bible encourages that what? You know what you believe. Number two, the Bible encourages that you know why you believe what you believe. The Bible encourages that you know why you believe what you believe. And lastly, the Bible encourages that you are able to communicate it with anyone who needs to hear it. Is this clear? Know what you believe. Know why you believe what you believe and be able to communicate it to anyone who needs, it, who needs to hear it. Be ready to give an answer is what Peter is saying. Be ready. Hallelujah. And so in our last teaching, we went through a, a defense on, we've done quite a number of things. We've, we've checked the existence of God and we've answered the question, is God real? How, 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 how many of you are blessed by that teaching? All right, all right. Amazing. So, um, is God real? We also went on to, to um, discuss, can I trust my Bible? And that was a very eye-opening one, right? Where we looked at um, inspiration. How did scriptures come? Was it through dictation theory? Did someone just open his eye and say, Lord, speak to me? And started writing it down. 
Or did he pick up a scroll from on top of a mountain where God put it there and the Bible was written and he started to copy it? How did it come? So I urge you listen to every sermon in this teaching. One of the biggest reasons why people don't see the desired effect is because you listen to one teaching, you don't listen to the other. It's a full body of work to help you grow. Are you with me? It's a full body of work to help you grow. Hallelujah. I can't do all of the work that I've done before, but I can just try and make today's teaching as you know straightforward and as simple as possible. We've discussed how we receive the Bible, Doctrine of Inspiration. Um, we've spoken a little bit on was the Bible properly copied. Um, we've spoken, we've not spoken about contradictions in the Bible, but we've spoken about inerrance in the Bible, that is, are there errors in the Bible? And we've spoken about the Apocrypha. Um, if it sounds like um, rubbish, don't worry. Just listen to the sermons. It would make sense to you. It would make sense to you. So, can we trust our Bible? We've looked at Doctrine of Inspiration. What else did we discuss in that? We spoke about um, how we got our Bible. You know, and so now nobody will come and tell you that um, the white guys were the ones that wrote the Bible to put you in slavery and you to start questioning the whole of Christianity. <laughs> I've heard very funny stuff. And it's because Christians are not exposed to this knowledge. All right, let's go straight into today's teaching. It's Can I Trust My Bible? And it's the second part. It's a continuation. I'm just going to go, I'm going to dive straight into it. Um, get your, your writing materials, get ready. Stop me. I, you might not really be able to stop me, but try and just let me know if you have questions so that I would, you know, take your questions as we go on. All right. So today, like I said, we're going to go into the test for the accuracy of the Bible. So we're going to go into test for the accuracy of the Bible. And we've settled the issue of inspiration, um, how it was written. But now we want to use a general test for any historic material. And we're going to place it side by side the Bible. Now, I'll have you know that some of these processes I'm going to explain with you are purely scientific processes. Are you with me? They are purely scientific processes. And, and it has to make sense because any historic material can be tested for its accuracy even after several transmissions. Did you get what I said? Any historic material can be tested for its accuracy even after several transmissions. And the reason why we are doing this is because when you take away God and the divine actions from the Bible, you still get a complete historic document. How many of you know that? How many of you know that? When you take away God, the divine side of things and everything, you still get a complete historic document. And so if someone claims that certain things happened in the past, we should be able to test if those things are truly accurate. Did they really happen? How does science judge a material to be accurate? So there are three tests we're going to do, three evidences we're going to look at. Number one is called, now things are going to begin to sound like theological jargon here or history rubbish talk, but don't worry, I'll make it easy. Just write it and I'll explain what it means. So the first test is bibliography test. Bibliography test. It's B. Okay, it's been pasted in the comment section. The second is internal evidence and the third is external evidence. So we're going to consider the Bible and look at all of these things. All right, so let's jump straight into it. All right, so in bibliography test, let's start with bibliography test. So now here's the thing about bibliography test. Um, how many of you have seen the word um, bibliography before outside what I'm saying now? Maybe you were reading a book and you saw bibliography or you were re reading 
um, a project and you saw bibliography. It simply talks about the history, you know, the identification and description of, of certain writings, basically. Um, talks about the content of, of the writing. And in this sense, bibliography test seeks to, you know, examine the way we got certain writing. So if we say it's a historic material, how did it get to us? How can we be sure that what was written how many thousand years ago is actually um, the actual thing we received today? So can we trust that the materials that we have are reliable since the original materials do not exist? Um, so can we trust that the materials we received are reliable seeing that the original writings do not exist anymore? Are you all with me? So, let's go straight into it. Now, in history, one very important way you can trust the accuracy of any document is by the number of available manuscripts that you can find. Are you with me? About any historic document, one way that you can ascertain its accuracy is by the number of similar manuscripts that are saying the same thing that you can find about that subject matter. Are you with me? And seeing that the original manuscripts of the Bible do not exist, and this is because it was written on materials such as leather and papyrus, right? How many of you have heard of those before? Leather, papyrus. That was actually how they used to write in the days. And it's not like somebody went to throw what they wrote away. No. It's simply because leather would deteriorate after a while. Are you with me? Papyrus would deteriorate, um, 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 deteriorate after a period of time. And so they could not stand the test of time. Another thing to note is that Jerusalem was burnt down two times. So even if those writings existed, they would have been burnt. Are you with me? They would have been born. So this is very important to see. And so looking at the fact that we don't have these materials, how are we going to test for the accuracy? And like I said, in history, the number of similar manuscripts you can find on a particular document saying the same thing is how we prove that that document is accurate or is not accurate. And so let's talk about the Bible. The New Testament has over 5,000 known Greek manuscripts. Isn't that mind-blowing? 5,000. 5,000 manuscripts saying the same thing. And over 10,000 in other languages, like Latin. Are you with me? And over 25 copied portions of the New Testament. So the, the, the New Testament has 5,000 Greek. The New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in... Hebrew and Aramaic. So the New Testament has five over 5,000 Greek manuscripts that is writings about it. And then in other languages, we have over 25,000 of them saying the same thing, making us know that the Bible can actually be trusted. No document cl comes close to this. Do you know that? In history, which makes us able to say that the Bible is the most historically accurate document. Are you with me? 
Don't worry, I, I can see some questions in the comment section. Just follow the teaching. I'm going to answer all those questions. That's the next thing I was about to say. So just be, be patient. All right? Very accurate because now we can find so many. And this is how history proves all of those things. No document comes close. Are you with me? Yes, sir. The second document that comes closest to the Bible has just 643 surviving manuscripts. You know, Lee Strobel in one of his teachings, I urge you when you have the time, watch the movie, um, The Case for Christ. I think let me just give it an, an assignment. So, yes, church, we can give assignments to watch movie. Watch the movie, The Case for Christ. Download it, watch it, we'll discuss it um, when next we meet. It's a very strong movie that presents an argument about this. When you stack up the manuscripts that prove the accuracy of the Bible, they are stalled as a full-grown man. And the next one doesn't come close. I'm talking about historical accuracy. Are you with me? I'm talking historical accuracy. But what is most important to recognize is the accuracy of the Jewish copyists. The fact is this, when we look at the Bible, 99% of the text is sure. That is, the copies were so precise. Now, a lot of people take a different approach when you want to look at the Bible. Your question is, is it possible for them to have copied it? But I'm saying through historic examination, we are surprised at their precision. Do you understand what I'm saying? We are surprised at their precision. 99% accuracy. They were very precise. And the 1% you see has nothing to do with Bible doctrine. That is, there was no change in the doctrine they were teaching. The changes we saw were in things as little as exclamation mark and spelling. Isn't that mind-blowing? You know, when we look at it, you know, the Bible actually has, in the Jewish copies, there are about seven spellings for Bethesda. That's the pool. Right? About seven spellings for that. We have about five spellings for gathering. You know the demon from gathering. So, the only differences we see come from little things like spellings, punctuations. Are you with me? This, this has to blow your mind. I'm talking on earth historic accuracy. I'm not talking an examination done by a Christian. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, and this is important. It is very, very important to see. Very, very important. So now it means that when you put together all of the documents you can find and you see that the errors you are even finding are in as little so you have 5,000 Greek manuscripts and all of them say the same thing apart from punctuation and spelling. You have to trust the accuracy of the Bible. Are you with me? You have to trust the accuracy of the Bible. I'll give you some, some little archaeological um, 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 discoveries that have happened over time. You know, when it comes to things like the wall of Jericho, there have been archaeological discoveries about, about the possibility of this happening at the site. Are you with me? 
you can read on it. I don't have enough time to go into all of those explanations today. When it comes to things like Sodom and Gomorrah, you can read on it. And the most shocking that happened recently is the discovery of, of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Before now, it was almost like a contradiction that, oh, maybe the reason why we are seeing those accuracies, speaking, maybe the reason why we are seeing those accuracies is because we've not found documents that are old. But when the Dead Sea Scrolls surfaced, they are very old. And yet, they are so accurate and similar with what we have. They are so accurate and similar to what we have. And so, bibliography evidence, do you pick it? Bibliography, bibliography evidence makes us look at the texts and see their accuracy. And this is what I call the bibliography test. That when you consider all the available manuscripts, you can ascertain that the Bible is accurate. Hallelujah. Let's go to the next one. I'm not going to spend too much time on this. Um, I'm just going to communicate the points. You can read on it after now. Um, the next one, internal evidence. Internal evidence. So there are internal evidences that we can see in the Bible that can make us know how true the Bible is. That can make us have an argument for the accuracy of the Bible. Now, the accuracy of any, any material can be, you know, judged by considering what is inside of it. The contradictions. Are there contradictions in it? Are you with me? Is it, is it contradicting itself? Is it contradictory with reality, with reality and stuff like that? And so we're going to look at internal evidences about the accuracy of the Bible. Are there contradictions in the Bible? In the last teaching, I explained inerrancy. And what is inerrancy? Um, the fact that there are no errors in the Bible. And how did we start that teaching? We started that teaching by looking at the inspiration of scriptures, seeing that if scriptures are fully inspired by God, and our scriptural um, reference for that is, is 2 Timothy 3.16, it says that what all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. Inspiration means God breathed. So all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable. So we said scriptures come from God. And hence, we can already even trust that there are no errors. But after that, there are also proofs to make us trust that there are no errors in the Bible. So let's look at contradictions in the Bible. What I've come to learn many times is that many people don't have an intellectual problem with Christianity. Rather, they have a moral problem with Christianity. This will trigger many people, but don't worry. Take your time. I will explain. Many people don't have an intellectual problem with Christianity. Rather, they have a moral problem with Christianity. And so, don't get sucked into the arguments. You know, someone comes and start argue, starts arguing with you. There are errors in the Bible. Wait, wait, don't get sucked in, into the argument. Many times, the problem is not in the intellectual aspect of the Bible. The problem is that many of these people just put those errors out there as a smoke screen for their real problem. Their real problem is that they don't want to answer to God. Their real problem is that they probably lost a loved one and they want to blame God for it. 
And so what they are looking for is they are not waiting to consider all of the evidences. They are, look, they are looking for every way to prove that God does not exist because that's the only convenient way for them to explain the troubles that have happened in their lives. Are you getting what I'm saying? So don't be dragged yes, in many times to already start explaining a way. Descend the real problem. And I know why I started like this. A lot of people were expecting to start giving you the way to say that there are no contradictions first. But this is the first thing to note. They are going to probe every other idea because they have a goal. And the goal is so that they can come to a comfortable conclusion that God does not exist. But that's not going to be very easy. And many times when people bring up contradictions in the Bible, can I tell you something? Even many of the places they call contradictions are not contradictions. How many of you have expressed this before? They are not even the problems that we have when it comes to contradictions. Do you get what I'm saying? There are some problem places that you are like, ah, how is this possible? They don't even see that one. It's the one that's not even a contradiction that they bring up. And that's it. So sometimes, take your time, know your stuff, and don't fret when you're discussing with people. Just know your stuff. Are you with me? Yes, sir. Let me give you a few examples. According to Matthew's account, Judas died hanging himself. According to the book of Acts, he fell headlong from a field and his body burst open and his intestines spilled. Is this a contradiction? Probably. Someone is already there like, hey, how is he going to explain it? But here is the thing about the Bible. It sounds like a contradiction and you're like, yes, we cannot trust the Bible. Matthew is saying a different thing. Acts is saying a different thing. But after a number of historic studies, you, you get to understand, I can remember it was my pastor that was teaching it one time that he later listened to a man, I think it was Perry Stone or somebody, and the man went on a pilgrimage to Israel um, and to Jerusalem and all the places that these things happened. And when he got there, he saw that Judas was at, actually hung himself on a tree. But guess what? The tree was beside a cliff. So listen, the fact that Matthew said that he hung himself and Acts said that he fell down from a cliff headlong and, sp and spilled his guts all over the floor would make sense now because he hung from a tree, the branch of a tree. Yes, the tree broke and he fell down into the field. And that was why his body scattered and his intestines spilled. Does that make sense? Can we trust our Bible? Yes! Yes. Why didn't you see it before? You were not looking for the answer. You were just looking for a comfortable explanation that the Bible is corrupt and white men wrote it to put black people in slavery. That was what you were looking for. One of the major places, this is very obvious. And do you know the funny thing? Some of you did not even know that this was a problem in the Bible. And you've been reading your Bible all your life. How many of you ever knew that there was a contradiction in this part? Only one person. Hey, Alex, you go no now. You don't delete from my house for long. <laughs> but that's the thing. The actual things that might even come, many people don't know. Let me give you another example. I'll give you another example. Let's talk about. Do I want to give the example here or later? Okay. I'll give you an example. And I will make you, it will help you understand. As a journalistic um, investigator, you are called to a crime scene. 
something happened. Maybe probably you saw blood on this wall and somebody's injured and you're an investigator and you've been called to come and judge for yourself what happened in this place. And so you step into my room. You saw Jerry, you saw my sister and you saw me. And then you ask, Jerry, what happened? Oh, and then Joseph is outside, mind you. Joseph is outside. And so Joseph steps in later. So you ask all of us, hey guys, what happened in this room? And then Joseph says, ah, actually, Mr. Michael's brother cable and he put his leg on the wall, rolled on the floor three times, mark my words, three times. He cleaned his sweat. After cleaning his sweat, he tiptoed and then he hit his head on the wall. They're like, okay, that makes sense. Okay, no wahala. And then you ask Jerry. And Jerry's like, yeah, so he came in, you know, he put his leg on the wall, he cleaned his sweat, he tiptoed, he rolled. And they are in different rooms, mind you, you are interviewing them in different rooms. He tiptoed, and then he hit his head on the wall. Then you ask my sister, and my sister, and guess what? They are using the same words, though. Like, they are saying it like that. One say, oh, what happened? Like, um, Ola came in, he put his leg on the wall. He cleaned his sweat, he tiptoed, and he hit his head on the wall. That's what happened. And then you ask me, and I'm like, oh, Ola came in, he put his leg on the wall, he tiptoed, he cleaned his sweat, he cleaned his sweat, he tiptoed, and then he hit his head on the wall. Do you know that you would be wrong to make a conclusion that that was what really happened in that place? You would actually smell foul play if you are a proper investigator. Why? You would actually, a proper investigator in that situation would say you you colluded. You've spoken to yourself before now. That's why your statements are lying. Why? Because five people cannot see the same thing the same way from five different angles. So how about the contradictions you see in the Bible are not really contradictions? Because the differences in the Bible are actually complementary and not contradictory. <coughs> are you with me? Yes, they are what? They are complementary and not contradictory. When it comes to the synopsis, and I'll give you this term so you know, synopsis, talking about um, the books of the gospel, synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were written, some were eyewitness accounts, these were people that were with Jesus. They all could not have seen the same things at the same time. Are you with me? Yes, sir. So, the fact that they are writing different things does not... And mind you, they are not writing different things. They are writing... The, the way to get the full story is to listen to all of them. That's the way to get the full story. Because this person might miss some detail that this person has. Is that clear? So here are a few things to consider when you are looking at apparent contradictions in the Bible. Number one, and now I'm going to talk about contradictions generally. I'm not even talking about only um, contradictions inside the Bible. Because a lot of people have arguments against um, the Bible is contradictory, um, historic stuff. And Can I tell you something? And are you ready for this? Number one, when it comes to contradictions with things that happen in real life, have you ever considered that secular sources might be wrong? 
Have you ever considered that secular sources might be wrong? You are saying, oh, the Bible says this, but this thing says this. Or, the Bible says this is round, but in real life, this is this. But we don't want to ever realize that it's possible for secular sources to be wrong. Let me give you, let, let me give you an example, a very clear example you know, that I, I wrote down here. A historian, like a historian once said, you can't, that it is not logical to believe that Moses wrote the Old Testament. Why? Because writing was not invented until 500 BC. And somebody will pick that and say, I talk him. Can you see? They've been deceiving us. They wrote different things to... But after he said something like that, he also said things like, um, I've forgotten his name actually. You know, he also said stuff like, why does the Bible record David playing a musical instrument that it can't possibly be true because musical instruments were not invented in that time? Mm? But now, later, you get to realize and other scientists will come later and tell you that, oh, that's not true because they find writings that are dating far before 500 BC. Or musical instruments. It's even easy to fathom that one caveman was carrying bone and hitting it on somewhere. It's too easy to fathom. That is never hard. <laughs> it's too easy to fathom that. So now, because he's a secular source, you want to trust him over the Bible. The fact is, you have to get comfortable with the fact that sometimes secular sources can be wrong. Did you get what I just said? Secular sources can be wrong. Number two, read the context well. Many times you've probably misinterpreted the text. For example, when you have conversations with Muslims, they will tell you your faith is not true because how can your God marry a wife and give birth to a child? I'm sorry, sir. Where in our Bible did we say our God had to marry to have a son? When we talk about the sonship of Jesus, we are not talking about marrying a woman to give birth. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? Check your, check your context well. Read it well. Many times, and I say this because I've examined it, many times when you find contradictions in the Bible, your interpretation is either wrong or you've not read the whole of the Bible. Do you understand what I'm saying? Your interpretation is probably wrong. Many times. So this was the second example I wanted to give you. The temptation accounts. Many people don't even know that there's an apparent contradiction there in quotes, contradiction, because it's not a contradiction. The temptation accounts. What you have in Matthew is turn stone to bread, right? Jump off the temple, worship me. In Luke, you have Turn stone to bread, worship me, jump off the temple. How many of you knew that that was even the case? Okay, so I knew that that was the case. And, uh, all right, good. <laughs> Actually, all right. So now, maybe they were lying, Abby. Right? Like, why are they writing different things? We cannot trust them. Maybe they did not copy it well or whatever you want to come up with. But let's go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. And verse 3. Matthew chapter 4. And verse 3. It says, And when the tempter came to him, he said, 
If thou be the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Are you getting it? But by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. Then the devil take him up into the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angel charge concerning thee, and their hands shall bear thee up. Lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against the stone. And Jesus said unto him, It is written again. Okay, so now you know the account. I just wanted to read some part of it to you. Alright, let's go to Luke's account. So you saw there, um, turn stone to bread, and then jump off the temple, and then the last one, obviously, worship me. Now look, Luke chapter 4 and verse 2. Luke 4, 2. Is everybody there? Luke 4, 2. He says, being 40 days tempted of the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered, as he was hungry. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that he be made bread. And Jesus answered to him, saying, It is written, That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every good, by every word of God. And the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him the whole kingdoms of the world. And the devil said unto him, And now, what have you noticed in both of them? The difference is first, right? But now, how do we solve for the problem? Why did they write different stuff? Like, why? Was it a mistake or what's going on? But here is the thing. When we read Matthew, Matthew said, he says, Jesus said, but by every word that proceeded out of his mouth. Verse 5, Matthew said, then the devil took him up. After the second temptation, he said then, that is, Matthew claimed the order by putting this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. Right? But Luke never claimed an order. So, Matthew chapter 4, he says, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Matthew 4, 3, sorry, 4, 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the top of the city. Do you see that? Verse 7, Jesus said unto him, it is written again. Verse 8, he says, again, the devil taketh him. So, Matthew specifies the order at which it happened. But in Luke, in, in Luke 4, verse 4, Jesus answered him saying, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, by every word. Then 5, he says, and the devil. There is no order to say, then this happened. So, another thing to see is, Luke has a strong theme on emphasizing that the prophet died in Jerusalem. Are you with me? So, for him, the temptation of jumping off the temple, because the temple is in Jerusalem. Are you with me? The temptation of jumping off the temple was more important for him to mention because he was proving a point. Are you with me? It was more significant for him to mention than the worship. So for apparent literal, um, literary reasons, Luke switched the order. Is this a contradiction? No, it is not. One claimed the order at which it happened. One simply documented what happened. Do you get what I just said? Matthew gives you the order. Remember who Matthew was writing to. So the order mattered as well. 
Is that clear? And Luke was simply what a journalistic account, an account of all that happened. All right, number three, third thing to consider when you see apparent contradictions in the Bible. Can it be harmonized? And what I mean by harmonized is harmonization is simply to ask the question, is there a scenario where both these stories could be true? Do you get? Is there a scenario where both these stories can be true? I saw one guy's argument on WhatsApp today and he was like, these are the biggest problems that Christians have. And I'm like, eh. And then what he put there was simple. He puts Acts chapter 2. They were all gathered and they heard themselves speak. Um, all those said, at least not all who speak Galileans and they heard people speak their tongues. And it's like, but in our day, all we hear is now that in his mind, he has put an insurmountable challenge against Christians that they cannot cross. And I'm like, chairman, calm down. Act 2 said they hate themselves. Second Corinthians, Paul talking, said when I speak, no man understand it. So, sir, he has to describe So, is it a contradiction now? And then you go back to Acts 2. And then you clearly logically consider what happened there. And then you understand that the Bible complements itself and doesn't contradict. The other parts give you clarity. Don't forget that the Bible is a progressive book. How many of you remember that person that was arguing with Zoe and said that um, the Bible says no one has ever seen the father before. So how are you telling us that Jesus is God? Sir, the same Bible is progressive. Later, he told us that the word was with God and the word was God. The word became flesh. It's simple. Read the Bible. It's a progressive book. The New Testament reveals the Old Testament. Is that clear? The same Bible came to tell you later when he was explaining in John chapter 1. It says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And in verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Sir, the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. It's a progressive book. The fact that something was said in the Old Testament does not mean it was not revealed in the New Testament. If the New explains the Old, take the latest, the latest revelation that follows. Is this clear? Is this clear to you? So, let me go on with, with, with harmonization of, of Scripture. Is there a scenario where both stories could hold true? Is it conceivable that these two stories could be describing the same events? That should be your first point, not we've been deceived. You know? That, that's... What is the possibility? That's how to harmonize scriptures. What's the possibility of both events holding true? For example, I take again from the synoptics, the two thieves on the cross. How many of you know that story of the two thieves on the cross? Yes, Good. One gospel says Jesus was hung between two thieves who reviled him. You know what it means to revile somebody, Abby? Yes. Good. It says he was hung between two thieves who reviled him. And then another gospel 
Is everybody with me? Can you hear me? Hope the network is not breaking. Hello? Okay, all right, good. All right, so the first gospel says he was hung between two thieves who reviled him. And then Luke comes and Luke talks about something different. He talks about one of the thieves repenting and becoming a Christian and dying and on that day going to paradise. So now, your responsibility now is to see by harmonizing scripture, how possible is it? I thought this one says both hated him, they reviled him. And this one says one repented. Harmonization of scripture would help you realize that could it not be possible that they both reviled him and Jesus preached to one and got to that one and then he says today you'll be with me in paradise. This is simple stuff. Do you get what I just said? It's very conceivable. So, pretty simple. You just need to check. Is it conceivable? Um, it doesn't, like... And what I just said doesn't even stress, like stretch my imagination that it's possible. Like it's pretty easy to, you know, imagine the possibility of this happening. Are you with me? Um, I've given you how many points now. What was the first thing I mentioned? Secular sources can be wrong. Read the context well. You might have misinterpreted the text. Um, check if it can be harmonized. Right? And then the next thing is consider that the Bible was written with human characteristics. There are figures of speech, etc. And so it should not be pitted against other scriptures. That is where the Bible uses a figure of speech. Interpret it as a figure of speech. It's not a contradiction. Jesus says that I am the door. Does not mean that every other place where he's not called a door is a contradiction to where he was called a door. Do you get what I just said? Yes, sir. Exactly. So, um, the Bible was written with human characteristics. Now, just because, number five, just because a report is incomplete does not make it false. I take that again. Just because a report is incomplete does not make it false. And then number six. The New Testament's reference of Old Testament does not always need to be exact. This is another place where a lot of people, um, you know, have a lot of trouble. Um, always expecting that, oh, okay, he didn't quote it properly in that place, so um, it's probably the Bible has contradictions. No, the New Testament's um, references of the Old Testament does not always need to be exact. Do you get what I'm saying? So the New Testament can quote the Old Testament and sometimes it's not in the exact words at which those things were written. Is that clear? All right. And then, like I said before, latter revelation supersedes the previous. The Bible is progressive, like the example I gave the other time. So the fact that it says at some point that no one has seen the Father at any point does not mean that later the Bible does not say that the Word became flesh. All right. So 
Um, I hope everybody is clear until this part. I'm trying to take it as slow as possible. All right, so let's consider external evidences. External evidences. All right, so looking at external evidences, what we are just trying to say is, do other sources outside the Bible confirm the contents of the Bible? This is another way we can check if evidences, other things outside the Bible, do they help us confirm that the Bible is accurate. So number one, under this is simple. We have any writings outside the Bible from Roman, Greek, and non-Christian sources saying a few things. Number one, they conclude and they say that Jesus was from Nazareth. So make no mistake, there was a man called Jesus. He existed. This was not from the Bible. This was from Roman, Greek, very non-Christian sources. Actually, there are philosoph philosophers who have written that it is, it is non-scientific to claim that Jesus did not exist. You hear what I said? It is non-scientific to claim that Jesus did not exist because there, there are enough sources, both Christian and non-Christian, that mention that Jesus was from Nazareth, number two, that he was crucified under Pilate, being considered the Jewish king, Number three, that he was believed of his disciples to have raised many people from the dead, to have been raised by himself from the dead, and to have raised many people and performed many miracles. All of these things are in history. Are you with me? And history, other materials apart from even the Bible. All right, so let's go on. <clears throat> and then secondly, from external evidences, we have archaeological evidences. And it was important, like it is very important to know that archaeological discoveries Actually, one thing to see is that no archaeological discovery has gone against biblical reference. Did you hear what I said now? Did you hear what I just said? No yes, archaeological yes, discovery has gone against biblical reference. This is so crucial. Alright, so... Let's take a look at some logical examples. I'm not going to bore you with all of the details. I'm just going to give you very basic things, um, you know, to consider. Number one, logical example, circumcision. The Bible, you know, in, in Genesis chapter 17, verse 12, it says, And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised amongst you. Every man, every man child in your generation, he that is born in, his ha in the house or bought with money or strangers, which is not thy seed. In Luke chapter 1, verse 15, it says, And it came to pass on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and called him Zachariah. So circumcision. God instructed circumcision. I have you know today that medically speaking, medicine has said that the eighth day is the safest time to circumcise a child. Before medicine enter full line. Now, in God, don't tell us say now it's day for Bible. Do you know what I just said? Eight day. Like they say that at the eighth day is when um, I, I can't remember what they are called. Are they, are they called thrombins? What is needed for blood for blood to clot? At the eighth day is when they are fully formed. My medical people talk. Commute your mic. No worry. I won't hear. You. Yes. It's the protein factor star. We have um, protein, we have fibrinogen, we have um, this one, that other one, I can't remember the name, but it's this one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so yeah. And 
Come on, guys. The Bible has said this for how many years now? How many years now? Number two, logical things. The Bible specifies the perfect dimensions for a stable water vessel. When Noah, they build ark. The Bible actually, in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 15, make the boat 450 feet long and 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. high. Today, stable ships have to be around a length that is six times its width, actually in this dimension um, area. So, our God done the give dimension long before any of this, you know. Are you with me? How about uncountable stars? Jeremiah 33, 22. And the stars of, of, of the sky cannot be counted, and the sands on the seashores cannot be measured, so I multiply the descendants of my father, you know, and stuff like that. And here we have scientists coming out to say that it's almost impossible to count the number of stars. Actually impossible. Bible has said it since. I, I, I wish I could give you some, some other references, even down to things like the world is expanding. You know, many times Jesus, um, God talked about stretching the earth. You know, so I'll recommend a book to you all. It's called Am I Being Fooled? It was written by Pastor Emmanuel Irene. If you have time, go read the book. It'll give you some more information. <coughs> Let me give you prophetic examples. Prophecies in the scriptures, um, you know, that would help you, you know, talk about the accuracy, help you know the accuracy. And I'll just give you from the New Testament. I can't go through everything, you know. Um, how many of you know that as many of the things that happened to Jesus Christ, they were prophesied? You don't get it. What are the odds that what was written in Matthew to Micah happened the same way it was prophesied thousands of years later in the New Testament? Do you know one day I was walking on the road and I called Joseph. And I said, do you know what level of genius, what kind of thief and genius you would be to be able to... It's organized crime. I don't know what to call it. To be able to plan if you are Jesus and you are false. Do you know what it will take? It means that you have to first, as a child, go and learn all the prophecies about you. Now try and believe in your life to follow those prophecies. You don't get. It has to be the biggest. You have to. Uh -uh. Do you know what it would take? Even as a child. Let, let's take a. You must have planned it well. Even your parents must be in on the. On the on the crime, your parents or your neighbors, even Herod, must be in on that crime because they must do everything at the right time to fulfill scriptures. It's almost impossible. How do you plan? Like, I don't. How do you even plan your debt? <laughs> Biggest heist. I come to think of it, I, I feel like all the people that claim all these things have not really considered to think of how impossible it is. It was prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 Open, can someone post it in the comment section? Micah 5.2 I will read this just for, for the sake of everybody. And if you've never considered this before, start to consider it today. Micah 5.2 It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, it says, are only a small village among the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. It was prophesied that Jesus, the Messiah, will be born in Bethlehem. 
What are the odds that when Jesus was going to be born, there was a census? And his parents had to travel. Can you get what I'm saying? He was to flee with his family as a baby. Hosea 11.1. See, I was scattered amongst prophets. Hosea 11 verse 1. Please be posting it for them so they can see that you're not I'm lying. When Israel was a child, I loved him. I called my son out of Egypt. Do you hear that? I called my son what? Out of Egypt. Said so the more I called on to him, the father I moved from me. You know, let's go on. Prophet Hosea now. And Micah was 735 before Christ. Hosea was 753 before Christ. Different timelines. One is 35, one is 53. He will visit the temple as a child. Malachi. Malachi 3. And verse 1. Am I boring you? At all. Okay. At all. Awesome. We would rather be able to endure the word of God. Uh-huh. Malachi 3 1. Look, I'm sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord uh-huh. you are speaking. Ah, what happened? Okay. Can I go on? Yes, Look, I'm sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. Did you hear that? The messenger of covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So it was prophesied that you'll be looking for the Messiah. But he will come to the temple. Did Jesus not go to the temple as as a child? John the Baptist will prepare his way. Isaiah 43. This Isaiah guy, in word of knowledge, in prophetic, he shall die. <laughs> ah, Isaiah. Isaiah 43 says, Listen, is the voice of someone shouting, Clear ye the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Was this not what we said John the Baptist was doing? Preparing the way for the Lord. Isaiah, this it was Isaiah that said unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government of the show of the world shall be upon the shoulder, his name shall be called wonderful counselor. It was Isaiah. Isaiah was 430 before Christ. Sorry, Isaiah was 711 before Christ, rather. Malachi was 430 before Christ. He will perform miracles. Isaiah 35, verse 5. Let me just read it. It's important because some people will still be doubting in their hearts. And this is how you present these cases to people. Isaiah 35:5. And when he comes, he will open the eye of the blind. And you see, he was predicted that he was prophesied, not predicted, that he would do many miracles. Even that he will ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah 9:9. He will be betrayed by his, his friend. This one is the most Psalm, Psalm 41, verse 9. He will be beaten and flogged and spat on. Isaiah 50. We all know this one. Isaiah 50. That our transgression will be upon him. He will be flogged. Hallelujah. So these are prophecies that show you that the Bible is accurate. Unless all these things, how will you align it? How you want to arrange them? Hallelujah. Alright, our time is fast spent. I'm going to do one last thing and then we call it a day. I, I take your questions and then we, we end tonight's meeting. Alright. I'm going to address the translation problem. 
How many of you have spoken with somebody before and they, are, they have a problem that translations, different translations, how do we trust your Bible? Especially Muslims, they say the Quran is only one, the only Quran, and know this thing, but your Bible, we have many translations. And then they use that to, you know, make your claim of the accuracy of the Bible, you know, ineffective. But that's not true. Think of it this way. The Bible was not written in English, despite what some people think. The New Testament was written in what I said it before, Greek, Old Testament in Hebrew, you know, and small portions of it in Aramaic. Right? So, if you can't read Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, you need a translation. Do you get? You need a translation. And that's the first point. The second point connected with translation has to do with the nature of languages. I thought this one we were learning about um, how to interpret the Bible. Good sermon, go listen to it. I thought about how to interpret the Bible properly there. Language is not like Morse code. A lot of people think when it comes to interpretation, right, and getting the, the words, when you say something in, in a language, it's almost impossible to get the same exact equivalent word for word in another language. Do you hear what I said? Yes. That's where all this English used to come from. Where you come and be going is Yoruba English. Because Yoruba says, Oya wamalo. When you interpret that, Oya, come and be going. You can't if, take a language and interpret it word for word in another language. Would you get the exact same thing? No, you would not. You would not. So, I want the water forwards, and in, in you think that if it's in German, you get the same forwards. No, you cannot get the same forwards because languages are not codes. They cannot be the exact equivalent. It's virtually impossible, like I said, to have the exact same thing in one language said in another. Are you with me? So if you are going from Greek to Hebrew to English to German, if you listen to simultaneous translators, have you seen all this news that different people are talking? They used to end in different places. Some will say something longer, some will say something shorter. Are you with me? So this is important to see. Let me give you an example. What does can mean in, the, in, in English? Yes, can. Speak, don't worry, speak. Let's make it a bit interactive. Can. Connotes ability. Ability, I can do something. All right, can, can drink, right? Drink. Good. Right? And then in some languages, can means, you know, to fire somebody, like they can you. Now, I was listening to um, um, a seminary teacher one time, and he said something. He says his teacher used to say to him, and used to make a statement to him. Now, listen to the statement. Americans eat what they can, and can what they can't. Did you hear that? Americans eat what they can and can what they can't. Now, if you are to translate this directly to another language and you interpret can, 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 what will you get? <laughs> it won't make sense, right? It won't make any sense. 
Americans eat all the can and can all the cans. Or if, if you pick can as per container and you interpret it in another way, you say Americans container what the container and container. Doesn't make any sense. If you choose ability, Americans are able to what they are able to and are able to. It doesn't make any sense. Are you with me? And this is where you have to realize that there are different, there are bundles of words that mean certain things in your language that cannot mean the same thing in other languages. Are you with me? Yoruba is the, the worst. Yoruba can have one same four, four letters will mean 17 things. Ogun, 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 Ogun. I've said, do you know what I just said now is drugs, Ogun states, sweat, wealth, I've said up to like five different things just by saying Ogun, Ogun. And when you write it, you just write O-G-U-N. Do you see where the problem comes now? Is that clear? Good. <laughs> so, what you now have to realize is this. When it comes to, a lot of people are like, I want a literal Bible. The Bible has many translations. Sir, a literal Bible will not make sense when you read it. Because what you think is literal is not what literal really means. Literal means let me get the closest to the interpretation, not let me get word-for-word word interpretation. Do you get what I just said? So, Romans chapter 6 and verse 15, it says, uh, and I'll just say, <laughs> I have a few things to explain, but I'll just quickly rush through it. Alright, Romans six fifteen, it says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law? But under grace, certainly not. Now, Paul is talking here. NASB says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? May it never be. That's pretty much a good translation, Abby. May it never be. Okay. ESV says, Instead of may it never be, ESV says, By no means. And you're like, Okay, may it never be. By no means. Certainly not. NLT says, of course not. And then KJV says, God forbid. <laughs> but guess what? In that text, in the Greek, in the way it was actually written, there was no God there. But now, KJV has said, God forbid. Do you get? So now, you want to interpret KJV and you put God. Do you see that you cannot do word-for-word translation? But do you know the thing? Do you know KJV is the closest to the most accurate interpretation? Because the word that was used in the Greek is watered down when you say, of course not, very well not. Um, far, far from it. The actual closest to the heaviness of the world is God forbid. Do you get? Are you guys understanding what I'm saying with translation? Are you getting this? Is God forbid? Yes, sir. So a lot of people, you know, will struggle with this and force the language. But let's just be honest with you here. If you take John 3.16 and you read the Greek directly, here is how it reads. So for love the God, the world, that the Son, the only He gave so that every the believing in Him 
to perish, not have life eternal. That's the word for word of the Greek. If you say the first word to this, the second word to this. So, now you have to understand that when it comes to translations, the fact that it's word for word does not mean, stop looking for word for word. Trust that in translations, people are going to be able to explain it to the best they can understand. Do you get what I'm saying? So, what I can only say is this. Sometimes, I'll teach about translations later. I want to end here because of time. Um, but what I can only say about this is pretty simple. There are some things that are translations. There are some things that are paraphrasing, mind you. you know, when you begin to reach the message, those are paraphrasing, not translations. <laughs> Those are far from it. Far from it. God forbid. <laughs> you know, you can still use them. Some I, I I don't even know you should use them. Um, but when you stay, when you stick to KJV, fine. NLT is a bit away from it, but NLT will help you understand. But always cross check. Sometimes NLT even gets it wrong. Are you with me? But here is the thing: have your lexicons too. When you go and study how to interpret the Bible, like I thought, you learn how to check the meaning of those words for yourself. But translations do not mean that the Bible is wrong or has been corrupt. Or corrupted, sorry. Do you understand what I'm saying? They don't mean that. They don't mean that. There are, there are ways that people try. NASB tries to be very literal. NASB tries to give you word for word. I've given you an example of that before, Abi. A lot of you will see, you read KJV, and Jesus will say, woman, calling his mother woman, and you say Jesus was disrespectful. How many of you have thought about that before? But actually, it was because they were trying to be very literal. So the word translated woman there, in the Greek, if you use that word, is actually a respectable term for women. But in the direct translation to English, it is woman. So when they do a direct translation to say woman, you will now say, ah, Jesus, no get respect. Myself. Let me disrespect my parents. Anything that is stopping me from ministry. Let me disrespect my parents, you know. So it doesn't work like that. Is that clear? And so translations like NLT would help you now to better place it. And maybe other translations will now call her maybe mother or something. You know, and stuff like that. All right. Have you been blessed? Yes, sir. All right. So the yeah. next teaching we're going to do, we're going to leave all of this and we're going to go straight to, we're going to get, go straight to if God is good. Why do bad things happen? Why is there evil in the world if God is good? And after yes. that, we'll wrap up content and we'll wrap up all our teachings for this year. It's been a year. We have a packed archive of sermons. If you've not started listening, please go start listening. You know, we've done a lot. I wish I could go through all of the teachings we've done this year and just list them out. You know, in this year, let me see if I can go through them. We'll pray now. Begin. If you have questions, just prepare them. I'll take a few questions and then we'll, we'll, we'll go this night. And then Sunday, if God is good, why the bad things um, happen. So, uh, 